So we're going to turn to our second Corinthians 4, uh, page 965 in your Pew Bible, if you are using that. As we continue in our faith focus this January, our task for tonight is to consider the pilgrim's pain in light of eternity. Failure to understand pain properly has led to many pilgrims walking away from God, deciding that they do not want to believe in or follow a God who allows such pain and suffering as they have seen. On the other hand, there are countless pilgrims who testify to the great spiritual benefit of pain in their lives. Charles Spurgeon said, I am afraid that all the grace that I have got of my comfortable and easy times and happy hours might almost lie on a penny, but the good that I have received from my sorrows and pains and griefs is altogether incalculable. My personal experience is the latter, and I'm convinced that if we embrace what the Bible teaches about affliction in the life of the Christian, will change our experience of suffering radically. That's my hope for tonight, that you will see more clearly the comfort, the hope, the sweet joy of your salvation in the midst of whatever you may be going through, and will be prepared no matter what experience you may meet down the road. So before we look at our text, to that end, would you join me in prayer? Father, would you help us to know more deeply what we just sang? Would you open our eyes to see that which is invisible? We might stand on what is unseen, what is eternal, what is unchanging. And that might help us to live faithfully, joyfully, brightly in this world amidst joy and sorrow. Ask these things in the name of your Son, Christ. Amen. Second Corinthians 4, verses 7 through 18. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So, 
we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day, for this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. As we consider these words tonight, we are going to look at this text maybe a little differently than I might have otherwise, but through the specific lens of the relationship between the pilgrim and pain. My plan is to briefly walk through Paul's argument and then to draw out three principles before concluding by thinking about how our own experience with pain and suffering might be shaped by these ideas. We are only going to scratch the surface of what could be said about this passage, about the topic of pain, but I think it will be fruitful. So first, what is Paul saying in this passage? Look down at verse 7. We have this treasure in jars of clay. What is this treasure? Paul is referring back to the previous verses in which he is discussing his ministry of proclaiming the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ is this treasure. The good news that you, in your sinful rebellion against God under the sentence and condemnation of death, can receive forgiveness and be reconciled to God. That Jesus lived a sinless life, died a substitutionary death on your behalf, was raised victorious to new life such that if you turn to him in faith, you can be saved. Surely this is a treasure, this good news of inestimable value. And surprisingly, Christians are entrusted to hold this message. It is stored with normal, ordinary, simple, breakable jars of clay. Those who have received it are now entrusted with it. People like Paul. And verse 7 makes it clear as it ends, the treasure of the gospel is carried around by frail instruments to make one thing clear, that any power and glory would be ascribed not to the container, but to the source, to God himself. Paul really continues to make this point over the next series of verses. In 8 and 9, he talks about how the jars of clay are afflicted, perplexed, persecuted, and struck down. But the power of God ensures that they are not crushed, nor driven to despair, they're not forsaken, nor destroyed. The messenger is frail, but the one behind the message is unconquerable. Paul continues in verses 10 through 12 to argue the same point, using the death and resurrection of Jesus as an example. The surpassing 
power of God is demonstrated most clearly in his ability to bring life from death. Most fully in the gift of new life through the death of Jesus. And by extension, Paul says, through the pain and suffering of the Christian. He who worked through the utmost evil and injustice of the death of the Son of God is working through the pain and suffering of his followers. In verse 13, Paul notes that this is not a new idea, but he quotes David in Psalm 116 to say that this is the same reality that God's people throughout history have confessed. And especially what God's people confess in light of the resurrection of Jesus, which is the certain deposit of what is coming for all God's people. Paul concludes verse 15 by reminding the Corinthians that all this is so that God's power may be revealed to them, that they might see it, know God's grace, give thanks and glory to God. In verses 16 through 18, Paul turns our attention to what is eternal in order to put our current temporal experience into proper perspective. And he exhorts Christians to keep their focus on that which is eternally true rather than that which is transient. So that is a very quick run-through of this passage. This is how I would summarize what Paul is arguing. Because of their eternal hope, the Christian can endure the suffering of this world without losing heart, knowing that through their experience, God's power is displayed and the praise of his name is extended. I don't know about you, but that is a hard perspective for me to have. To see the pain of my life in light of the reality and the praise of God. To trust Him. To trust that He is at work when I feel sorrowful or in despair. How do we live in such a manner and not lose heart in light of the difficulties we face? That's the question that I want us to consider tonight. And I want us to think about three principles for the Christian regarding pain as we pilgrim through the world that come from this passage. Before we do that, though, I do want to make one more quick note. What we're going to talk about applies to Christians. It applies to pilgrims, those who are walking through this world headed to the destination of heaven. Those to whom God has shown in your hearts the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, as verse 6 says. What we are going to say is true for the Christian, but if you are not a Christian, as you will see, your relationship with pain and suffering is very different. So if you're here tonight and you are not a Christian, I pray that you will see through this passage through the lives of those who are following Jesus, the power of God displayed and turn to him. If you are a Christian, 
And I want you to hear what is true about you, what is true about pain in your life. So first, pain is a normal part of the pilgrim's life, so don't be surprised. Pain was not a part of the world that God created, but the reality of sin brought with it a curse, such that all creation is now prone to decay and death. You and I are no exception. Right away, God cursed men and women. The labor of childbearing became painful for women. The labor of work became painful for men. As inhabitants of this fallen world, pain is a constant reality. Physical pain, relational pain, emotional pain, pain inflicted by others, pain that we inflict on ourselves and others through our sin. No one is exempt from suffering, and ultimately no one is exempt from the final pain of death. All of us have experienced this to some degree, some more than others, but there is no escape. If you have not experienced much in the way of suffering, you will. And if you have suffered much, it's not over. Paul alludes to the frailty of our human condition in describing people as jars of clay, prone to wear and tear, cracking and breaking, and ultimately ceasing to be useful at all. And at the end, he refers to the fact that outwardly we waste away. That's just the reality for humanity. Pain is a normal part of life for all who live in this fallen world. And here there is no distinction between the Christian and the non-Christian. But for the Christian, there is more. Not only do you live in a fallen world and experience the suffering of that nature, you are actually now at war with that world and you experience suffering in light of that conflict. This is primarily the affliction that Paul is describing in this passage. A rebellious world is now at enmity with you. God's enemies are now your enemies. There are many today who would feed promises of ease in the life of the Christian, material possessions, physical well-being, worldly success. This is actually part of what Paul was fighting against in this letter. People questioned his message because of how much difficulty he faced. But the Bible is very clear. It teaches no such thing as an easy road for those who would follow Jesus. We are called to take up our cross. We will be afflicted in every way. We will be perplexed, persecuted, and struck down. Your Savior was hated, so will you be. He was despised and rejected, that will be true of you. And not only will the battle rage externally, but perhaps even more challenging, it will rage internally. God, in his mercy, will convict you of sin. That hurts. 
That which you used to be numb to will now cause you much sorrow as you see more ever clearly the damage you are capable of causing as you sin against God and others. That sin, like vines entangling your legs, will pull at you as you seek to walk with Jesus in ways that it never did when you were lying still dead in your trespasses. Pain is a normal and constant part of the pilgrim's life, both as a part of this fallen world and as a part of the people of God who are at odds with this world. I don't want to belabor the point. Many of you don't need to be reminded of this. You are living it day in and day out. But I am afraid that some of us, maybe even most of us, are in danger of being surprised by suffering Most of us have lived our lives in a fairly unique context. Throughout the history of this country, being a Christian has meant less conflict with the world around us than most anywhere else ever. And we live in a culture with magnificent technological advantages that provide a lot of creature comforts. We are used to being comfortable as creatures, and we're used to being comfortable as Christians. Perhaps we have bought into at least some of the spirit of the age that pain is the anomaly and comfort the deserved norm. When in reality, in a cursed world, the truth is the exact opposite. Peter warns his readers in 1 Peter, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Beloved, do not be surprised by suffering as though something strange were happening to you. Pain will be part of your life. I don't say this to discourage you, but to strengthen you. One author, I think, helpfully pointed out, the less we expect to suffer, the more devastating suffering becomes. I think this may be part of why the past couple of years have been so difficult for so many in our culture. We simply did not believe that this kind of suffering was possible in our kind of age. If you are caught off guard by the presence of pain in your life, then you will be prone when the inevitable suffering comes to despair or self-pity or confusion about whether God loves you and if you can trust him. This will only serve to intensify the pain. So don't be surprised. Pain is a normal part of the pilgrim life. That's not the end of the story, thankfully. Let's move on to our second principle. Pain is a redeemed part of the pilgrim's life. So rejoice. For the Christian... Pain and suffering have fruitful purpose. There is meaning in your pain. In our passage tonight, we see three ways that this manifests itself, inwardly, outwardly, and upward. Let's consider the inward fruit that is born from pain and suffering. Look at verse 16 again. Paul may be wasting away outwardly, but inwardly he is being renewed day by day. For the pilgrim, pain is now an instrument in God's wise and loving hand to shape and mold you. 
to renew you and grow you. Conviction of sin hurts, but what a mercy that God reveals our need for him. Loss of possessions is painful, but so often presents us from becoming, prevents us from becoming too attached to the things of this world and turning from our Savior. The process of being sanctified is a painful one, but it is one which is ripe with meaning. Paul tells us in Romans 8 that God is working all things together for the good of those who love him according to his purpose. And what is his purpose? The next verse gives the answer to conform you to the image of Jesus. God is working all things, including your pain, Christian, to inwardly renew you day by day into the image of your Savior. In addition to serving the purpose of inward renewal, pain serves the glorious purpose of displaying God's grace outwardly. Paul is clear in this text that the suffering of the Christian is for the display of God's power and love to others. In verse 12, death is at work in Paul so that life can be at work in the Corinthians. And in verse 15, it is all for your sake so that grace may extend to more and more people. Paul here is simply echoing what Jesus told his disciples in the Gospel of Matthew. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. Part of the intentional purpose of, God, of pain for God's people is to be a witness for God, that others might know him. Your pain is part of your evangelistic witness to the surpassing power and greatness and worth of God in the gospel. And both the inward renewal and the outward witness of suffering result in the upward glory to God. As we are shaped more and more into the image of Christ, the gospel of Christ is spread and God is glorified as we see in verse 15. Which is why, in the midst of pain and suffering, you can and should rejoice. Scripture repeatedly exhorts the Christian to this response. Jesus, Peter, John, and Paul all exhort believers to rejoice in their sufferings and trials. And on the surface, this may seem like a strange idea. It is a little bit of a strange idea to rejoice in pain. But consider an example of what this might mean. A few years ago, I was reading through the book of Mark with the help of J.C. Ryle, a 19th century English pastor, and I was struck by his thoughts regarding the paralytic man who was healed in Mark chapter 2, the man whose friends lowered him down through the roof to Jesus. This is what Ryle writes. Who can doubt that to the end of his days this man would thank God for his palsy? Without it, he might probably have lived and died in ignorance and never seen Christ at all. Without it, 
he might have kept his sheep on the green hills of Galilee all his life long and never been brought to Christ and never heard these blessed words, thy sins be forgiven thee. That palsy was indeed a blessing, but who can tell that it was the beginning of eternal life to his soul? Christian, when, when our suffering is backed by such a divine purpose and yields deeper knowledge of Jesus for ourselves, an opportunity for the dying world to know life, and increased praise to God, what other response could we give but to rejoice? So pain is a normal part of the pilgrim's life. Pain is a redeemed part of the pilgrim's life. And our third principle, pain is a limited part of the pilgrim's life. So don't lose heart. We see at least two ways that Paul talks about in which pain is limited in the life of the pilgrim. It is both prescribed and it is temporary. Pain has purpose in the life of the Christian. We just thought about that. But what this also means is that there is a driving force behind that purpose. Consider how Paul speaks in verse 11. We are always being given over to death. Given over by whom? Think of other ways that the Bible talks about Christian suffering and trials, pruning, discipline, testing, refining. All of these actions require something behind them, someone behind them. Who is it that prunes, disciplines, tests, refines, gives us over to trials? It is our loving and almighty heavenly Father. And if it is God who submits you to affliction, it also means it is him who decides exactly how much comes your way. You can be confident that while you may be afflicted and perplexed and persecuted and struck down, as Paul says, his hand will limit your suffering such that there are certain pains you will not know, that you will never experience, you will never be crushed or driven to despair or forsaken or destroyed. You will never and can never know the pain of being separated from God and his love. The same powerful God who spoke the world into existence, who tells the waters of the sea this far and no further, prescribes the boundaries of your suffering, Christian. Charles Spurgeon communicated the value of this by contrast. He wrote, It would be a very sharp and trying experience to me to think that I have an affliction with God, which God never sent me, that the bitter cup was never filled by his hand, that my trials were never measured out by him, nor sent to me by his arrangement of their weight and quantity. It would indeed be a trying experience pain did not come from God. If it had no limit to what it could mean, if it was not measured out by the hand of someone who is for you, 
But if it is, if he is the one who has filled the cup and asked you to drink it, he who drank his own cup of suffering, that we might be reconciled to him. What comfort is there for the pilgrim? And brothers and sisters, not only is your pain limited in weight and quantity by the wisdom and love of your God, but your pain is limited in that it is temporary. And here we finally get to the faith focus, living in light of eternity. But we also get to the point where the experience of the Christian and the non-Christian diverge most extremely. There is no such hope for the non-Christian. But for the Christian, there is an end point for your pain. This is where Paul concludes our passage. There is a reality awaiting you, Christian, that makes all the affliction you have ever known or will know light and momentary. You are pilgriming toward a place where there will be no more suffering, no more tears, no more sorrow, no more pain, no more death. The promise of God is that the resurrection of Jesus is a guarantee of the resurrection to new life for all followers of Jesus. And if that resurrection, and in that resurrection life, there will be such a joy that it is not to be compared with any pain we experience in this life. They aren't even in the same category. Which is not to minimize the suffering and pain we experience. Think of childbirth. Labor is painful, so I'm told. No one denies the pain, but any mother will tell you that it is not worth comparing to the promise and joy of holding your son or daughter. Consider Paul. He knew poverty, weakness, sickness. He was repeatedly whipped, stoned, imprisoned, and shipwrecked. In addition, he was abandoned by coworkers, watched beloved churches struggle, and partners in the gospel walk away from the faith. Suffering was Paul's constant companion. He never minimizes these struggles. He's honest about them. In fact, in chapter 1 of 2 Corinthians, he writes that he is so utterly burdened that he despairs of life itself. He literally says that he is so utterly weighted that he has no hope. But here, three chapters later, in light of the promise of eternity, he can use the same word to talk about the weight of glory, which makes his previously weighty affliction look feather light by comparison. So rather than despair, as he does in chapter 1, Paul does not lose heart. And he exhorts the Christian to do the same. Do not lose heart. Whatever you are going through, knowing that God is at work, measuring out the limits of your suffering, and even using it to prepare you for joy 
incomparable. I've talked to some who I know think that's all fine and good for most people. You have no idea the pain that I am experiencing. It is more than anyone can handle. That's true. I don't know the pain that each and every one of you are walking through. I know some of you, know some of what you're walking through, uh, as I was preparing this week, there were multiple times where I was writing or reading through tears, thinking about the pain that some of you are navigating right now. And I know that even where I am aware of suffering, I don't fully understand the extent, let alone those situations that I know nothing about, or maybe no one knows anything about. I don't need to know your suffering to know that you need not lose heart, because what I do know is what is awaiting you, Christian. I know the glory that has been promised to you, dear brother or sister, and therefore I am certain that in light of what is coming, no matter what you are going through today, you need not despair. Not because what you are walking through isn't that bad, but because what you are waiting for is that good. I promise. More importantly, God promises. Pain is normal. Pain is redeemed. Pain is limited in the life of the pilgrim. So we should not be surprised should rejoice, and we should not lose heart. In our final minutes, I want to consider how our own experience of pain can be shaped by these realities. I want to start by pointing out a number of ways that we can get this wrong. Expecting suffering could lead to dread or pessimism, always waiting for the next horrible thing that God has in store for you. Turning into an Eeyore Christian would not be a faithful response. Do not be surprised by pain, but do not expect the very worst possible outcome of every possible situation. Remember, pain is normal, but it is also measured out by a God who laid down his life for you. Another way that we could get this wrong, rejoicing in suffering does not mean that we relish in pain. We are not ascetics who flog ourselves. We do not seek out pain and suffering, trying to make people angry at us so that we can experience some sort of suffering. It comes from God's hand. When it does come, we do not run, we do not hide, we seek to receive it with trust-filled rejoicing, even as we rightfully cry out to God, as the psalmist so often does. Which leads us to the next mistake we can make. We already addressed this a little earlier, but we don't ignore suffering. We are not Stoics who deny the reality of pain. Pain really hurts. Saying that it is light and momentary by comparison with eternity does not minimize the pain. It maximizes the eternal joy. 
The deeper we go into the depths of pain, the more we realize the depth of the hope and joy of Christ. When we fall deeper and we think, surely Jesus is not this deep, we find that he still is there. And that will always be the case, no matter how far into the depths you descend, the glory of Christ will go deeper. So don't downplay suffering. That only downplays the depth of the glorious weight, the glory that awaits the Christian. Finally, on the other side of the coin, we don't ignore pain, but we also don't dwell on it or magnify it. We don't make pain or suffering our identity. We don't organize our entire life around it. It is a part of our life. It is a normal part of our life but it is a redeemed and a temporary part of the life of the Christian. Instead, we dwell on the eternal things of God. This is what Paul points us to in verse 18. Look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. When we look at our pain and suffering, it can loom so large. When we look to the glorious promises of God, what he has done and where we are headed, they begin to take on their proper proportion. So look to the things that are unseen. Think about, meditate on, speak with others about, dwell on the finished work of Christ and the certain hope of eternal joy in the presence of God. There are hundreds of ways that we could go about this. I want to close with five ideas for how you could foster this perspective in your life. First one is not revolutionary, nor should it be. Read your Bible. Be transformed and shaped by the eternal and steadfast truths which God has revealed through his word. We are so prone to forget. Remind yourself daily, maybe morning and evening, maybe five times a day. Come, listen to the word preached on Sunday. Be shaped by the truths of God's word. Second, pray that God would draw your heart and mind to the things that are unseen and eternal. Ask him to help you to see rightly. Third, read Reading is popular around URC. There's lots of books that you could read that would be helpful in this arena, but tonight I want to specifically recommend reading Christian biographies. Reading about brothers and sisters who did not lose heart in the face of great difficulties has been one of the most encouraging things in my own life, helping me to face difficulties with joy. If you need some ideas... Here are a few that have been encouraging to me. Adoniram Judson, John Patton, Corey Tenboom, Jim Elliott, David Brainerd, Johnny Erickson Tata, Charles Spurgeon, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, William Cooper, Martin Lloyd-Jones, Amy Carmichael, Darlene Diebler-Rose, John Kelvin, Hudson Taylor, and George Mueller. I promise I had to pick. I cut some off. Fourth, in addition to reading about people you will probably never meet, talk to each other. Ask each other what role pain has played in your faith. There may be tears, and we may not always be ready to share our deepest, darkest suffering with anyone who asks, 
but it will likely be a great encouragement to someone to be able to share God's faithfulness in their life and a great encouragement to the listener to hear God's faithfulness. Finally, I want to encourage you to share with others when you are suffering. This is hard for most of us and requires wisdom and grace to know when and how much. But remember, God uses pain not only to refine you, but to display His glory to others, to encourage your brothers and sisters, and to witness to a dying world. So be willing to answer if someone asks you. Maybe send out more prayer chain emails asking for prayer. Call a friend to ask to talk. Be willing to be a fragile jar of clay, knowing that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. As we think about pain in the life of the Christian, you will face pain in your life. But it comes from the hand of your loving Father, and it does not get the last word. So do not lose heart. Do please pray with me. Father, you know how fragile and clayish I feel trying to convey the sweetness and the hope and the beauty of what you have said in your word. Would you speak to us? Would you help us to know renewal inwardly, day by day by day by day? May your mercies be new to us each morning, refining us, restoring us, sustaining us, and ultimately bringing us faithful to the day when we stand before you and all of your purposes see their fruition in the fullness of Christ. Would you grant that we might navigate through to that day through joys and sorrows that would come our way by your sustaining and almighty power. In Christ's name we pray, amen.